Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we dive into the world of fish talk and meet one of the scientists behind a new website called fishsounds.net, an online library featuring snippets of fish from around the world, which we'll play for you, and why listening to them is such an important conservation tool. We speak to Eva Holland, author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, about her journey to understand and overcome her anxieties, or at least learn to live with them, and what advice she has for the rest of us. But first, the Russian siege of several Ukrainian cities fuels an ever-increasing humanitarian crisis, including shortages of water and food. What impact is that having on those living on the front lines? Well, the tactics Russia is using in Ukraine, constant shelling of cities, is fueling a humanitarian crisis. And while scenes of indiscriminate destruction of a neighbor's cities could provoke opposition to Russia, the Kremlin is now cracking down on the flow of any information and dissent, banning Twitter, Facebook, shutting down all but media that can report what they want them to report. New laws mean foreign news agencies are also stopping all reporting for now. Joining me now to look into this is analyst of Varvara Paramenko. Thanks so much for joining us again, Varvara. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Good evening. One thing you, I know you worked a lot in, in, especially with the Ukrainian military, about how to protect civilians in conflict. And this has really disturbed you, what you've been seeing in Ukraine the past week. Uh, how is it fueling this humanitarian crisis? Uh, it's it's getting worse, obviously. Uh, with the Russian army not able to take control over Ukraine quickly and easily, it's now got to the strategy of just uh, shelling cities with artillery and aviation. Something we could see happening in Aleppo in Syria, for example. Uh, and it's obviously leading to a lot of civilian victims. So we now see uh, in not only indiscrimination, but probably in some cases, it's just targeting civilian infrastructure. Uh, many places around, many cities around the country stay now without water, without heating, electricity. Uh, without access to uh, uh, to food, uh, and uh, several cities are besieged. Uh, when the situation is quite difficult, people have a shortage of medicine, food. The city of Mariupol on the Azov Sea in Donetsk region now is probably in the most difficult situation. is uh, under constant attack uh, from two sides. And uh, right. a lot of people still left there. Clearly, I, I mean, I'm not sure of this. You may know this. You know Russia well, uh, having grown up there. What would the reaction be to these sorts of images in a free and open media in Russia? Would they be horrified to see uh, what was happening next door? Would we have a free and open media in Russia? I think, yes, people would be horrified. But what we happening now in Russia that uh, Russian state TV uh, and other uh, state government media just portrays this as a Ukraine itself is bombing its own cities right. and Russia is there just to protect and I think still a lot of Russian citizens are in denial they just don't want to believe uh, in the fact that Russia can be doing this uh, don't want to hear about it uh, and try just to stay in their in a small world, focusing on their own problems, and not think about 
uh, something horrible happening just next door. Today, though, Twitter was banned. Facebook was banned. A new law put in place that really prevents anyone from reporting anything that could could be uh, gleaned as being anti-war. Um, this is a kind of media crackdown, or at least information crackdown, that we really haven't seen in Russia before. That's right. Uh, and it's not just media crackdown. Uh, today, uh, so two leading human rights organizations were uh, closed completely and searched by police and the organization, uh, human rights organization Memorial, one of the first founded in, uh, during the perestroika in Russia and who was famous for working uh, to protect civilians in, during the war in Chechnya and other conflicts. Uh, after the search today, the police left a sign inside on the ward uh, with the letter Z, Z, and the sign that right. memorial is over. Letter Z, that's what all tanks have the sign on them, tanks going in Ukraine. This just shows that Russia just attacks not only Ukraine, but all free uh, independent thinking, uh, those who are staying for the human dignity inside Russia. And it's very, very dangerous development for Russia itself. For now, as I say, most of the people in, in the country don't understand and don't realize this, but I'm afraid that very soon we will see dramatic uh, deterioration of quality of life. Already now, there are a lot of reports of people trying to flee the country. Uh, mostly it's still people with money, so those who are able to do that. But there are already reports of people trying to hide their uh, sons of the conscription age uh, and trying to flee to the neighboring countries, being afraid that they're going to be sent to Ukraine to die. And there is, with the sanctions having effect, it will affect not only the richest one, but the regular people. There is already a report of a shortage of medicine and all of this. So I think Russian people will start feeling this very, very soon. Whom they going to blame? That's a good question. Whether they will blame the Mr. Putin or just the West? Presumably, that's why the information crackdown is happening, so that there's only one narrative in Russia to respond to who's to blame. I, I imagine. Uh, I only have about another minute left, but you've been talking to people in Russia. What is the the mood right now of those people you've been speaking to, and what are they planning to do? Now people are just terrified. Uh, Almost every second post I see in social media among my friends, it's just, I love the country, I love the country. Or completely closing all their social media accounts because yesterday, uh, today actually, the Russian State Duma broke the law uh, when people for, who are calling to stop the war, for example, or trying to uh, tell about the real events happening, civilians being killed, Russian soldiers being killed, could be sent to jail for up to 15 years. Uh, so people are very, very scared. I imagine, and this might be the end. Are we going to see an end of the protest, do you think? A yes or no? I think it might be the end of a protest. It might be the end of any independent reporting from inside the country. So it's a very, very scary development. For Vera Parmenko, thank you so much for your insight as always. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed, fish communicate, and they all sound pretty different. And it turns out that listening to fish, and you can do that on this new website called fishsounds.net, listening to fish is not only fascinating, 
but very insightful and extremely useful. Don't take my word for it. Joining me now is Kieran Cox, Liber Eero and, and uh, I'm going to get this wrong here, Liber Eero and NSERC postdoctoral fellow, Earth to Oceans Research Group, Biological Science Department at Simon Fraser University, and one of the people behind the absolutely wonderful fishsounds.net. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's Libra Arrow, but I was uh, very much of the same pronunciation uh, when I first got into the field as well. So welcome to Fish. Libra Arrow. Perfect. Um, I mean, just to state the obvious, fish talk. Yeah, and quite a few of them. And this is really what myself and a great group of collaborators have been trying to uh, summarize over the last couple of years. This is a thousand-year-old plus discipline of observations about the kinds of acoustic communication and interactions that fish have. And now we're really pleased to have the first estimate of just how many fish we know contribute many of those noises you just played, but many other to aquatic soundscapes. We'll play some more too, because we've, we've put quite a few of them on here. We're not going to make you guess which ones they are. It's not <laughs> a skill testing, <laughs> skill testing thing. Um, why do they communicate? I mean, this again is a pretty obvious question, but why do they communicate? And, and, and why is it so different from between different fish? Well, you know, I mean, fish are in many ways using what is a very important medium. So for those of us who have been fortunate to spend time around aquatic environments, we know that light is very limited at depth. So if you go below 10 meters, you start to lose certain colors. 20 meters, you're going to start to lose light altogether in many systems. Visibility is very tough. So in most of the waters, if you're lucky enough to live near the Fraser, you can't see the bottom most days, if ever. And so sound becomes really important for managing our move or fish movements through this environment. And it's not surprising that a large number of fishes have evolved ways to interact with soundscapes. So perceive acoustic cues in the environment, someone else enjoying a meal that you might want to steal or a, a uh, mate making a call that you might want to interact with. And so that's really what we see today is just a large number of fish. We're at about a thousand today, but that number is growing very quickly, have been observed to produce various sounds that interact with those soundscapes. And it's really because there's so much information embedded in sound, right? We're talking on the radio today. This is me yep. reaching many people. And that's true as well in the aquatic environment, if not more so, because sound travels faster in water, as well as other sensory systems being limited. I wanted to play for you one that I found particularly fascinating was, and a fish I've always been fascinated by, was the Arctic char. That is, an, that is really not the sound I expected an Arctic char to make. I don't know why. <laughs> no, certainly, certainly. And this is a neat one because, you know, char cod many of these kind of fish we're very interested in studying them they're very important to us and we can use this information to monitor these populations through what we call passive acoustic monitoring and so that's exactly as it sounds where we can put down a hydrophone leave it there and then get a sense for how many individuals are in the water what species because as you pointed out that's very unique to certain types of fishes and so that's one of the things we're hoping this database will help people do is improve our knowledge of monitoring species in a way that doesn't involve dragging them up off the bottom or to a boat and sometimes harming individuals. I was going to play another one for you. We have the Pacific herring. Uh, 
We won't have the Pacific Herring. They've gone. They've gone silent for a second. Apparently, the Pacific Herring. You did bring up because I was going to ask you about that. This really, I mean, as as fascinating as it is, and as novel as it is for someone like me, this does really allow you to be able to see, um, to study fish, and, and especially in stuff like invasive species and so on. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and you know that's really I think where the frontier of this work is headed is understanding that for a long time we've considered humans impact on the ocean. So how we change soundscapes specifically through noise pollution. And that's very important. But a key part of that dialogue that has been missing in many systems is that two-way interaction, the understanding that fish are contributing sound and maybe our kind of changes to the environment influence how they call or the rate at which they call or how successful their mating are, where we can find them, these kind of things. And so really, you know, the group that I work with we're incredibly excited about the kind of frontier of this work and having this, what we hope to be a very transformative website. It's open access, free to the public. And we really want people to go on and interact with fish sounds, think about what this means to the environment surrounding them and for the scientists out there to use this data to push the field further. We have the Pacific herring now. Again, I mean, what what I found so remarkable because I went onto the website, you know, essentially not knowing, you know, in the dark to coin your phrase about being deep underwater, and I was just stunned by how different each of them sounded. I had no idea they would sound so different. I suppose it's natural, um, but it, it is it is remarkable that that all these different fish uh, sound so unique. Mm-hmm. And you know what's really fun about the. Uh... The herring uh, that you just played there is that's actually uh, the acronym for that is uh, farts. It's uh, fast, repetitive ticks, and it's right. actually air that is escaping, uh, very much like air can escape from people. And so right. the coining there is that herrings fart, and they do huh. use that behaviorally, and it influences their schooling. But it's kind of a really neat, fun interaction with aquatic soundscapes, which is essentially schools of herring as they move up the BC coast right now are are farting for lack of a better term. <laughs> so I, this is something, again, this may sound ridiculous, but fish, I mean, they travel in these huge schools. Are they all talking at once? It depends. And that's the really unique thing about soundscapes. And it's very much like, you know, the way we use sound. So in certain situations, sound is really important. And certain parts of the day were relatively quiet. Some of our behavior, although not what we call active sound production. So I'm talking actively to you right now, I still might make sounds. So this is me rummaging around my office. Fish do the same thing. So as they interact with an environment, they may produce passive sounds where they, you know, eat a meal and they chew food and another fish can eavesdrop on that information. Um, Or maybe they're talking all the time during mating. So this is many of the choruses that we see. Those of us that live in Vancouver and the surrounding area may have interacted with a fish called the plain fed midshipman. And essentially many of these males, when they're mating, they're humming all night to attract females. So in that case, you know, yes, they are talking constantly, but for the rest of the year, they may be relatively silent um, in many interactions. I think we have one next called the streak gunnard. I'm going to mispronounce that perhaps, but here's what it sounds like. Oh, 
also silent. <laughs> We're just having yeah. some problems with our with our technology. It's not the fish. It's not used to hearing fish speak. We'll get to that in just a second. One story I found fascinating because I've been scuba diving. I spend most of my time looking at my oxygen, thinking if I'm going to make it up to the surface or not. But you were actually calm enough to hear the sounds of fish. It's sort of what sparked your interest in this to some extent. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so, yeah, I've been very lucky with the environments that I've been able to travel to and dive because of my initially was all interest based, And it's really what got me into marine ecology in general. And I think if you sit on a reef, uh, you can you can really interact with this soundscape. And so you can commonly hear the snapping shrimp uh, parrotfish chewing on coral is quite a common one that people will hear. They don't realize what they're hearing. Um, right. but I think, you know, if you spend enough time underwater, you really start to listen for these kind of sounds. Unfortunately, if you've had a boat go overhead, it can be quite jarring, um, even if it's quite far away. And again, that's because sound travels so quickly underwater. So yeah, that's really where it all started for me was, I mean, I hate to date myself, but in 2007, uh, I was diving in Cambodia and this kind of really kicked everything off from there. Yeah, I'll date myself even, for, I'll carbon date myself compared to you, but uh, here's the street gunnard. What's amazing about them is that when I was listening to it, I was just thinking of like, you know, science fiction movies, essentially, because a lot of them sound like creatures that we would think would be from a different planet. Mm -hmm. And that call you that uh, that noise you just played is really interesting because they actually do that as a behavior when they are feeding. And so the thinking is that it's really like a kind of territorial going in to get a meal and, you know, a big flex almost before you take a bite and scurry away. And so it's a really good example of one of these very neat behavior specific, but important interactions that fishes have underwater where you're going to get that food and you give that you know, that big push and then the other individuals back off and you get a lunch out of it. So again, it's really neat behavioral case. I'm back with Kieran Cox. There certainly aren't too many fish in the sea, Kieran Cox. I, mean, I don't even know how many, um, but you haven't quite recorded all of them yet. I want to actually play the freshwater drum for you now. That's another ominous one. That was another, that's another one that sounded like get away from my food, but I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. So that's uh, something they do when they're associated with mating activities, but this is a right. really neat example. Um, Dr. Rodney Roundtree and Francis Juanez, who are collaborators on the Fish Sounds Project, and Francis was my PhD supervisor, they were able to map out the movement of this species through waterways um, in Eastern United States. And the interesting thing about that is it's invasive and in monitoring invasive species and charting their movement is one of the primary challenges in this space. And anyone that knows anything about the uh, invasive species community is that it's causing a lot of havoc in natural systems. And so they propose this idea of, well, can we use the fact that this fish makes noise to follow its movement through waterways indicate that it's reproducing and that it's establishing populations there and they were able to do it and it's a really important thing to be monitoring because there's a lot of evidence to suggest it's going to continue moving through these waterways so yeah that's a really uh, a really neat example of that passive acoustic monitoring applications of fish sounds as well as kind of neat natural history how do you capture the sounds 
So these are hydrophones, uh, very similar okay. to the microphone that you're talking to right now. Um, but I'm, I mean, maybe not much more expensive than yours, but certainly more expensive than mine and uh, able to go underwater. Um, and so we can deploy these. Batteries have gotten very good, as has memory. And so these can go underwater for several weeks or months, um, much longer if needed. And then they're retrieved and identified from there. If we're really lucky, we get to put down a camera as well to help with identification. Because as you mentioned, there are many fish in the sea. There's about 34,000 fish. So we've got quite a few to go on the list. Here is the black spotted croak. Again, another interesting one and another kind of aggressive sounding, what if I may say. Mm -hmm. And a really great example of the power of local ecological knowledge on this topic. Um, right. The croakers, the drums, many of the species that we've talked about today, these were named arguably before we knew much about them as far as the scientific community uh, is concerned. And it speaks to the idea that fishers in these systems and people that live near these waterways have known for a long time that these things made drum sounds or that they made croaking sounds and they named them these common names as a result. And so it's this really neat interaction between the ecological knowledge that people have in an area and then the scientific community starting to do more deep dives and quantifications of this data. The Atlantic salmon, uh, what I wanted to hear from. That was quick. Mm, yes. That was quick. That was jarring. Yeah, and quite an important yeah. one on our coast is obviously that's a yeah. that's a big ec economic species and on the east coast as well. So, you know, very the um, aquaculture industry has been very good about letting uh, these kind of obscure biologists into their farms to put in hydrophones and monitor these species. And they're very interested in the work from an application standpoint. So it's been great to interact with those industries. I know you don't have a Pacific salmon, but do they sound alike? Uh, no, I don't think we have that data just yet. Um, it's certainly right. uh, because we don't farm them, it's much harder to get. Um, I did have a chat right. the other day on Twitter about someone with someone who interacts a lot with those species. And we're hoping to gather that data. And really, you know, to anyone out there who's interested in this kind of data, we're going to make this website so that user profiles can be generated and people can start contributing their own data and really try to crowdsource and go fully uh fully open access and citizen science with this kind of, uh, this network. Which is such a great idea. It's called fishsounds.net. How many do you have up there now? How many recordings do you have more or less? So we know of about a thousand species that make noise. We have over 240 recordings. We're about to do another upload. So our team is just this phenomenal group, um, who are exponentially better at these kind of things than I am. And they're about to make a big data push and get more data online. And then we're going to make user profiles so we can start pulling uh, more people in and more citizen scientists and experts on the topic. And so really the next year is going to be a big, exciting development stage for us. Kieran Cox, it has been absolutely fascinating. Congratulations on a fantastic website. You gave me hours of joy today. No problem at all. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm not sure what your phobias or fears are. I had an aunt who hated snakes, a best friend who hated snakes. I've never much liked heights. When I was little, it was fire. There'd been a lot of fires in my neighborhood. It's fair to say we're living in anxious times. We all have our own phobias, and now we're having to deal with a pandemic. There's a war going on. Um, 
And we have our own phobias and fears to deal with, obviously. Well, my next guest set to find out more about her phobias and anxieties, how to get over them maybe, or really how to live with them. Joining me now is Eva Holland, author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. She's also a correspondent for Outdoor Magazine, and she joins me from Whitehorse. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I guess like all good things, um, the, the, the idea of diving into a subject often starts with a very unique personal experience or a unique personal experience, I should say. And in your case, that, that's exactly what happened. It is. Yeah. I, um, it, you know, I, I knew for a long time that I had a fear of heights, but I, I live in the Yukon, as you said. And most of my friends spend their time playing in the mountains. And so I had to figure out a way to, to play in steep terrain uh, too, even, even though it um, uh, bothered me to do so sometimes. Bothered is an understatement. Um, but the, the book started because of a particular panic attack that I had on a nice climbing trip in northern British Columbia. Yeah, I've always hated heights as well. So the moment I, I started into your book, I'm like, I'm going to be able to relate, relate to this because I've never been a big fan of heights either. So you decided at that point, I gather, to at least understand the fear. Yeah, I wanted to understand what was happening to me. I had had this, you know, previously I'd been able to sort of like maybe be a little embarrassed, but but under control, you know, maybe I, maybe I would cry or say something embarrassing um, but on this one particular incident, I, I really lost control of my body and, and put myself and others in danger in the situation we were in. And, and I thought, I need to understand what's happening to me. You know, the first step to changing it is to even understand um, what is going on right now. And yet, I know so many people, and, and I think we're all, you know, I wouldn't say guilty of it, but we're all responsible for it. Many people who have fears simply just avoid them. Um, as life goes on, if you don't like heights, you stay on for solid ground. If you don't like snakes, you avoid snakes, for instance. What made you decide that maybe the right way was to explore? You know, I think avoidance is a reasonable strategy if, if you can do it without sort of overly impacting your life. I, I don't think everybody has to sort of go through this kind of dreadful, hard process of, of trying to sort through their fears and, and learn to, to modify or control them. Um, but but for me, it was really making my life smaller. It was it was affecting me both personally and professionally. It affected my social life here in Whitehorse, and you know I'm a I'm a professional uh, adventure writer, um, so it was also sort of limiting my professional prospects. And I, I felt like for me, this wasn't accept an acceptable limit. Um, other people might you know set their bar differently. What did you do uh, when you started out to figure out the roots of of, of this fear? What steps did you take and what did you find out? Well, the very first thing I did um, based on, you know, my, my real ignorance of the subject is I thought, you know, we have this cultural idea of, you know, we just got to push through and face, face down our fears and kind of, you know, like I picture like the, you know, the Kool-Aid jug smashing through the wall <laughs> in, in those old commercials, yeah. um, you know, just break, break through to the other side. And, um, and so the first thing I did is I went skydiving. Um, before I had done much, much reading or anything, I thought if I can just do the scariest thing I can think of uh, and survive, I'll be, I'll be fixed. <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds like, I mean, I, I can't even, I have no interest in skydiving, but, but wow. <laughs> what uh, me, me neither. You know? <laughs> it was, um, well, it was not a cure for my fear of heights as it turns out. Um, 
unfortunately the GoPro uh, that they fitted me with failed. Otherwise there would be video of me screaming expletives through 30 seconds of free fall. Um, alas, the footage is lost, but um, yeah, I, I survived, but I did not feel good about any of it. It was, it was something I was able to force myself to do, but I, but as I, you know, as I then dug into the science of what we know about how to treat, you know, phobias and, and that sort of thing, um, I understood that, that it wasn't about forcing through, it's about changing your patterns and, and being able to remain calm, not just sort of like gritting your teeth through the scariest thing um, you can think of. And, and there's no change that comes from just forcing like that without the work to sort of learn a new pattern in your brain and your body. I thought about that reading your book as well, because as a journalist, if I, you know, I've been in war zones, I've been in things that are very uncomfortable. I realized that every time I do anything I don't like, I take a deep breath beforehand um, mm. just to sort of settle yourself before you go do something that you don't really want to do. Um, what, what techniques or what did you figure out about how at least to conquer that fear or try to live with that fear of heights? For me, it was um, initially a really gradual approach. I I tried to use um, learning to rock climb as sort of a DIY exposure therapy. And, and what I understood from the, from the um, journal articles that I read in, in the scientific literature was that it needed to be gradual and it needed to be really kind of gentle. Um, learning to, you know, remain calm with one foot off the ground and then two feet off the ground and then, you know, climbing a little higher and, rather than pushing, just trying to, to rebuild the structures in my brain that tell me what is safe and what isn't. Um, that was really hard, slow work. It was somewhat effective for me. Uh, and then later on in the process, I did um, find a, a quicker route to, to some relief, which was I went to Amsterdam for an experimental drug treatment. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because you did try. I mean, there are a lot of therapies that there's always someone out there with something to offer you to cure what ails you, for instance. Um, you tried some of these. You tried some of these these help aids, so to speak, to try to conquer anxiety and fear. Did any of them work or what, what did you find? They all worked to varying degrees with the exception of the skydiving, <laughs> which was my, my own... Uh, Self-medication. Bad yeah. prescription. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Highly ineffective. Yeah. Um, they all worked for me to different degrees and they all involved different levels of, of work and, and different amounts of money as well. You know, different, different levels of access for people. Um, one of the other things I was struggling with was trauma from a series of car accidents. And I, I tried a therapy called EMDR for sort of my flashbacks and, and hypervigilance while driving. And that was very effective for me. Um, a strange experience, but, but effective. What is EMDR? It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it is a therapy that was developed in, in Northern California <laughs> uh, in the late 80s and early 90s that involves a, a trained practitioner um, guiding you through your, your traumatic memories uh, while, moving, while prompting you to move your eyes back and forth in kind of a rhythm. Uh, they do that sometimes just by wagging their finger back and forth or with um, the use of lights or uh, mine was based on sort of these pulsing pods that vibrated in my hands that prompted my eyes to move left and right. Um, and it's not fully understood and it was dismissed through much of the 90s as, as pseudoscience. Uh, but but it has been proven in, in a number of, of studies at this point to to ease the effects of traumatic memories on people and they just don't really know why. So, it, so it's still... Um, engenders some skepticism. But for me, it was 
something about the physical nature of having to move my eyes um, seemed to help address the fact that trauma is, is physical, is a physical response, not just something that we sort of think about and dwell on, you know, it's, it's in our bodies and, and we react with, you know, struggling to breathe or um, tensing up and these sorts of things. Um, and uh, so that was a really strange and interesting experience. I hadn't really done much sort of formal therapy before that. Right. Because I was reading again that, that the fear of heights actually goes back, and this is so common. I mean, I, as a child, I had this deathly fear of fire because there'd been a fire behind our house and a series of fires in my neighborhood where I was growing up in Montreal. Yours too was a childhood experience um, that, that brought that sort of fear of heights. I think so. It's hard to know for sure. It can, these things can be prompted by, by early life experiences. They can also be, um, you know, there are genetics predispositions uh scientists think there's there's an evolutionary explanation for some of this stuff a lot of the most classic phobias are sort of like logical fears uh on hyperdrive you know and and so there's some debate about the origins it's possible that i had sort of a genetic predisposition to some sort of phobia and anxiety and and the heights is what i latched on to um because i took a fall uh on an escalator at pearson airport in toronto when i was when i was quite small uh, and I, I uh, struggled with with escalators for way longer than I care to admit afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I think all children, uh, the escalator is one of the one of the things that all children fear in some ways, and yet you don't want to tell anyone because wow, it's sort of part of growing up, right? You see your older people just jump right on, and as a child, you're thinking that's moving way too fast for me. I'm speaking to Eva Holland, author of Nerve: Adventures in the Science of Fear, and a correspondent for Outside Magazine, uh, based in Whitehorse. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about why the anticipation of fear or the anticipation of something happening is often worse than the event itself, and also a bit more about techniques to help you conquer fears and anxieties. Well, that'll come up right after this. I'm back with Eva Holland, author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, and correspondent for Outside Magazine, based in Whitehorse. I know you, this is a quote, but the it's true, the anticipation of something scary is often worse than the event itself. How did you, when you were started this research, how did you, how true was that, did you find? So much of my research for the book was kind of finding things that explained, you know, finding statements or, or facts in the research that that explained something I'd experienced but never been able to express, you know, like I didn't, I never thought about fear as the anticipation of pain until I read that that definition from from the 19th century. And I thought, yes, of course, that's it. It's all about, you know, the the flinch or the cringe or the the brace before something bad that you're that you're expecting or thinking about or, you know, fearing. Uh, that covers fear of grief, of grief and loss. That covers fear of, you know, an accident or a hurricane. Um, fear of ripping a bandaid off. It's it's really kind of a catch-all definition. And I thought it was just brilliant. What have you found? You talked to about about good and bad fears. That there are fears that seem irrational that you sort of I think understand inherently are irrational. And then there's that sort of fear that it's your it's essentially your your spidey senses, so to speak. Yeah, I think this is the real trick is is parsing when we should be afraid. So much of our culture tells us to stuff down feelings of fear almost regardless of what they are. Um and it's really tricky to to think when am I being unreasonable? When am I being paranoid? When am I being sensible? Uh when am I being wise? You know, it's um I think that's that's the thing that I found hardest to to think about in my own situation and to to offer, you know, any concrete advice for anyone else. But I 
for me, it came down to um, when fear sort of freezes me in place, I often need to give myself a talking to and say, okay, you're, you're fine. This is unreasonable. You can move through this. But when fear prompts me to move it more often, when I looked back on it, it was, was a, a good thing that I was, that I was taking action, that I was, you know, taking evasive maneuvers or whatever the, whatever the case may be. And, and that for me seemed like a distinction that maybe would help people. I, I imagine so. Yeah, I, I think sometimes you need to trust your senses, right? That's kind of the, you know, tr- trust, trust your instincts, so to speak. Um, we're obviously living in a time of heightened anxiety, one feels. If it wasn't the pandemic, it's talk of, you know, climate change and the impacts of climate change. Um, now we have a war. When you look at the current at world events unfolding now, how do, how do you, what advice do you give or, or how do you process what's happening right now? I, like everyone else, you know, struggle between, you know, staring at the news or social media for too long and, and getting really anxious or, or sort of, you know, numbing myself with a binge watch on Netflix. Um, we all have our, our less healthy ways of coping. But I think it's important to be aware of what's happening in our bodies. You know, when you're reading the news and you feel your chest tightening and your, and your breath shortening, to sort of stop and say to yourself, okay, I'm, I'm feeling anxiety. And like, like you said, you know, take a deep breath, take a, take a pause, stretch your, stretch your arms, stretch your legs. Um, I think acknowledging where we're at is, is one step towards sort of uh, managing those feelings in a, in a healthier way, you know, saying, okay, maybe I'm going to go, you know, look at a 10 minute yoga YouTube video instead of watching any more tweets about nuclear war. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we have to know where we're at in order to take action. So at the end of this, I know the journey continues, but you set out to sort of find out more about fears and anxieties and maybe not conquer them, but at least learn to live with them. How successful has it been? I was shocked by how successful my uh, sort of personal quest was that, that this book documents, you know, I thought I'd be writing kind of a wishy-washy epilogue where I'd say, oh, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't fix my fears, but gosh, didn't we learn a lot of science along the way? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the trick to writing a book when you don't know how it ends. But, but actually, I found that I was really able to make a lot of change in my relationship with fear and, and to feel like I was healthier and had tools and coping mechanisms and a better understanding, um, which was a really nice bonus of, of working on this book. How did that manifest itself? So, for example, for example, um, you know, the EMDR therapy was so effective uh, for me that I I no longer hyperventilate while driving on the highway, <laughs> which right. is a big positive life change, uh, especially in Whitehorse. Um, yeah, especially in Whitehorse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some there's some winter driving involved in living up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and more broadly, you know, one of the the themes that run through the book is also about, about the connection between grief and fear. And I, by the end of the book, I felt more equipped to face, you know, future grief. A part of the book is about my mom's death a few years ago. And, and I know that I will lose other people I love in future. And that really scared me. Uh, and now, you know, it's not something I look forward to, but I feel better equipped now to, to move through those future, future griefs in, in a healthier way. Because I, I know it started, the book sort of started out with this fear of heights and the fear, fear of death fear of death of a loved one, your mom in, in, in particular. And those are two things I think a lot of people, well, specifically the second one, a lot of people fear. And you feel like at least you've learned to live with those fears now. 
I think so. Yeah. You know, the, the pandemic has, has thrown a wrench into my Zen state a couple of times. Um, but I, I feel better, better equipped now for sure to, to sort of have a, I stopped thinking about it as conquering my fears and more about, you know, building a healthier relationship or partnership with, with fear, uh, because it is necessary too, right? It's, it's important to our survival to feel fear. That's why we, that's why we have it. And so finding sort of a healthier relationship uh, made sense to me more than this sort of language of conquest or defeat. Yeah. The analogy of the Kool-Aid man busting through the wall, the Kool-Aid jug is probably a fitting one and one that we probably shouldn't follow when it comes when it comes to fear, as satisfying as the imagery may be. Eva Holland, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ben.